You're listening to the Evolution Exchange Podcast Nordics, a melting pot of ideas and inspiration shared by some of the most successful technical leaders in the Nordic region. I'm Shan Vance. I help connect businesses with tech talent. And today I'm your host. Today, I'm joined by Nikolai, Rasmus, Stefan, and Jacob to discuss how to practically use AI and deep learning in 2022. So before we get into it, let's work our way around the room with some quick introductions. Nikolai, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, thank you. Hey, guys, I'm Nikolai. I come from the Product House Capacit, which is a new way or establishing a new way in which we can create products with our customers. My background is as a software engineer from DTU. I've been working with mainly research in London and the US for a while. I've been working with different solutions um, regarding deep learning. Rasmus? Yes, thank you, Sian. So so basically, uh, thank you very much for, for letting me uh, participate here. So uh, my name is Rasmus. I have a, a background in the IT industry and have worked uh, uh, in, in AI and related fields for, for a number of years. And and basically, I'm, I'm coming from a company called 2021.ai. Uh, don't ask me about the name. We can take that another day. <laughs> and uh, and it's uh, it's basically a company that is that is doing uh, AI governance, both uh, in terms of software, but also in terms of consulting, uh, and and sort of uh, managing uh, AI models uh, in terms of development, uh, deployment, and operation. So thank you very much for being here. Great, Stefan. Yes, uh, my name is Stefan. I have a, a long background from IT industry and working initially on computer vision uh, for the first 10 years. Uh, the last period of my time, I have been working in retail in IKEA, where we are transforming our customer support organization into being more, more AI powered and using more modern technologies to provide customers with proper customer support. Uh, and that is a big challenge. We have more than 10,000 agents in our customer support centers globally in 32 markets that we now try to help to get their work done better with AI. Great. And Jacob? Yes. Thank you very much. And thank you for, for hosting this uh, interesting topic. Uh, my name is Jacob. I'm uh, a co-founder and uh, head of AI at uh, Go Autonomous, a SaaS solution who develops uh, AI-powered SaaS tools for especially industrial companies. I have a background in consulting where I've worked uh, sort of like uh, uh, different places in, in Europe and in the world on uh, sort of like advising uh, companies on how to use AI and advanced uh, analytics in their production or customer care or finances and so on. Okay, great. So now that we've established a context to each of you, let's move on to the topic and focus. You all have a question or statements around how to practically use AI and deep learning in 2022. As usual, I'll work away around the room with each of these questions and allow you to elaborate. And each of you will then have the opportunity to give your take on the situation. Okay, so Jacob, we'll come to you first now. You'd like to discuss the level of quality and quantity of data annotations needed to practically use AI and deep learning models today with the new focus on transformer models. Do you want to explain a little bit more for us? Yes, yes, of, of course. I think it's just the, the development over the past, what, five, uh, eight years on, on, on transformer, transformer models has really sort of like accelerated, especially within NLP, uh, the the use uh, cases that you can actually apply with with much lower data uh, amounts. 
uh, however, then most of this data, at least due to my experience, require a, a high quality uh, because now it's not as much of quantity just because we have the quantity out there. Google, Facebook, uh, Amazon, they're all training big, 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 big models uh, based on scraping just the entire internet of data and then trying to teach some fundamentals. And then it's about us uh, potentially trying to, to fine tune this towards more specific uh, tasks. And uh, then at least the, the things that, that you hear when, when sort of like in, in the area, it's like, yeah, you actually don't need to do that much. You can just take these big models and uh, then, then use them. Uh, however, in production, they're not always uh, sort of like too good to, to, to use GTP3 and, and, and so on because they are, they are very heavy and inference time takes long. So, so at least to my experience, it's more efficient to take some, some larger models that has some underlying structure with the vertical paths and, and so on, and then fine tune them towards your use case with some amount of data. And then it's always, uh, to my experience, sort of like what is the right level of data, the right level of performance, the right quality of data, and how do we ensure we get the right quality of data? I think that there's, first of all, a very good question to ask. So we have loads of data out there, and we have these big models, as you talk about. What I'm curious about is mainly how can we, like, lower the amount of annotations needed. So how can we take something from the domain we're working with? So let's say that we are working in the, so the transformers is also again, used in, for example, vision learners. So if we're working with that, how can we actually use something like contrastive learning? So self-supervised self learning has grown a lot, which is basically the idea of not annotating your data, but letting it train on something that will give it a semantic context or something else around that data domain that you're working with. So what I'm thinking here is how can we actually pinpoint out the domain that we're working in, figure out some kind of self-supervised or contrastive learning that could be done in that domain, and then use um, these deeper or these larger models as a baseline and then only fine-tune on contrastive learning. Of course, you'll have a step more, in my opinion, where you have to annotate something. You have to, for example, use some of the services out there. So you have Google has services, AWS has services for annotation work that can be done. Let's say that you need to figure out what all the stop signs are saying for some reason. Um, then you can maybe learn the generals of a stop sign above something like a transformer model and then use that as the basis for fine tuning. So you have like a step after mm. what you're doing with your uh -huh transformer model that, that's at least in my experience something that can be done to limit the amount of annotations that you need uh, yeah I, I would say i mean from from my perspective I, I think it's also a very interesting uh sort of trend in the market now to sort of adjust uh data rather than adjusting the model uh mm -hmm. and and uh, to fit to fit the predictions to that uh, and there's a number of companies out there i mean snorkel for example uh, is is a company that is sort of has, has specialized in that area alone, uh, which I find very interesting. But there's also a bunch of annotation and commercial vendors out there that have introduced uh, image annotation, textual annotation uh, in an automized way, right? So you can, as you say, like uh, label the first 10 images and then the, the, the rest of the 10,000 images gets automatically annotated. And then it's just a question of uh, validating and making, making it uh, 
you know, make, making those labels uh, or validating that those labels are correct. And I mm. think uh, that that's a very interesting uh, trend. And I, I see that trend also uh, moving even further into, you know, uh, synthetic uh, data generation uh, that are being generated to to train the models, right? Because in the end, uh, I think if you look at it from the medical perspective uh, in, in the medical device industry, if you look at it in the financial industry, then it's all about once the models are deployed and operated and operating in a in a in a commercial setting or in a, in, a, in an operational environment, then it's just about validating that these models behave correctly. Mm. So from that perspective, you could say the the focus on the original source states that becomes uh, from from a from a because I'm I'm you know looking at it from a regulatory perspective there you know maybe the the the, the all the focus that we have had in the past around uh, the source data has maybe has become a little bit less actually which is quite, which I also find quite interesting uh, the fact that you can sort of uh, adjust the data set to fit the the, the model predictions. Yeah, and I, I agree. And now when you're talking about the regulatory perspectives, I think that that's, a, that's, that's an interesting thing, especially when you are a SaaS company, uh, because I totally understand it if you are sort of like a, your own company, you have some data and you want to annotate it. But when you are a SaaS company and you're working with AI, you also are limited by the data sort of agreements that you have with your with your customers. Uh, because it's not just uh, possible potentially to just outsource all of the data uh, to to some external vendor, and also, at least from my perspective, also as you 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 talk about, it's about not having necessarily the, the right amount, but having the right quality. We have done some some research which show that if we get around 10-15 percent errors, then we actually need twice as much data to annotate it. Which which for us at least it it, it proves just like okay when we have we have our own entire in-house annotation uh, team, and uh, when they sit and do annotation, we all the time tell them if you just make one uh, mistake out of ten, you need to do twenty annotations because that is actually the how it is. Mm. Uh, that that if you if they do one out of ten wrong, then they need to do twice as much. Uh, and and that is just uh, for us has been really interesting and also why we we keep a lot of focus on how can we optimize on sort of like having the the right uh, foundations for our annotators and one of the things we're working with is also pre-annotation uh, and for some tasks it works really well all the tasks that are very sort of like the car is on the road here here's the road all of these very objective things however when it comes to subjective things like is this uh, article positive or negative in all of these things we also have seen that if we do pre-annotation we're actually priming uh, annotators towards a specific uh, thought of a specific uh, opinion about what they actually are doing so for us it's also it's it's a little bit about making sure that we don't bias our annotators while making the job as easy as possible for them. It's a, it is a challenge and uh, we work quite a lot with NLP issues specifically. Uh, we want to analyze what all our customers are saying to us and the reason why they are contacting IKEA and to use that very valuable data asset to improve our service. And we are just starting. Uh, it's a very interesting and challenging field because it's moving so fast. So when we look into make versus buy, the buy option are like changing so fast. Uh, but we are mostly building ourselves based on component that you mentioned, Bert, uh, which is uh, and we we do. Uh, 
we also do speech to text, uh, which and in speech to text there is you no know, annotation. There is a plugin face Facebook notations uh, data sets that we we use. There is also amazing work done with uh, OpenAI in the, the Whisper library that is killing killing everything. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then that, that, yeah. but but what we have uh, annotation work uh, being ongoing for the last three four months to annotate all the conversation with what is the reason they're contacting us uh, it's a big challenge to get it right big challenge to get it right um, and I I see that you have yeah, exactly. more pains than I have done so far <laughs> but, but I think mentioning whisper and and, and bird is, is exactly where we, we we need to go because whisper is what if you calculated some 80 years of, of voice that has actually been been trained on uh, and bird potentially if we we put it to to a written context even more that that has been been trained on and I think that that's su super interesting right because but I also think as, as you also said Rasmus uh, that yes we need to to have these big models and then fine-tune them towards yeah. our specific tasks and that's where we need these annotations and that's where quality comes so much higher than quantity because we have the quantity of the underlying foundation and then we just need to to fine-tune them and then uh, for, for me and for us I think that the, the main thing and also we are talking with with other companies that that are working within the same uh, same areas it is how can we because sometimes it's also a tedious task to sit and annotate it. And, and Nicola, I think it's sort of like all the things about self-supervised learnings, we, we are looking towards how can we actually do this, also have talked with, with, with different researchers about, okay, can we go away from actually having humans annotate this to having the underlying event that happened? The, the problem is, however, sometimes when you are, if we're taking a call from a customer at IKEA, and then they are starting to talk about something, uh, and but then you end up in the conversation actually a, a completely different place, and then the action that you do afterwards is actually completely different than where you started. And then again, you are back at actually you need to have a lot of data then, uh, because then you need to be able to filter away that okay yes, but that was because the the, the topic changed over the period of the the conversation. Uh, if you're not going in and annotating, okay, the first time took this much and and so on and so forth. So, so I think uh, it's just minimizing the data that is needed, and I think that's needed through human annotations. And how do you then issue high quality annotation? Yeah. And also pre-processing pre, uh, the data so you definitely and it's also definitely interesting to talk about model drifting right mm. so when you have a model which has been fine-tuned you have done the hard labor of annotating and you go to production with this model how do you keep annotating how do you create some process or pipeline to actually keep that fine tune of your model and prevent it from something like drifting yes this drift is, is, a, is a major thing also in, in in our our case and also just domain switching uh, yep. we, we have so many different customers uh, and we want to to of course try to unify uh, the way that, that we do stuff and still being able to serve the small uh, customer who gets only like one tenth of uh, the volume as the, the big customer does. And that it's also about ensuring sort of like data privacies are, are upheld and, and while at the same time trying to say that the small companies uh, can benefit from, from the bigger ones in the sort of like area of AI. Yeah, I think also uh, an interesting 
aspect I think around drift is that uh, depending on who you talk to and what kind of model it is, what kind of data it is, then they perceive drift as different things, right? So for me, you can have drift going throughout all of the phases of the development and operational stages, but you can also have things like you, you talk about data drift, some people talk about model drift, some people talk about concept drift, mm. and I, even I'm still not completely sure what concept drift actually is or model drift, as opposed to data drift is maybe a little bit more clear. And if you then dive into each of these subjects, there's actually like hundreds of different metrics. So maybe for, for, for the rest of the panel here to ask, I mean, what kind of metrics do you think is the most usable and in what kind of models? Yeah, definitely. For, for, for me, I'll just quickly start, start up that we, we definitely work sort of like with our customers and, and, and that uh, a success criteria for us is not necessarily how the F1 score of our models and the accuracies and the AOC curves and all of these different things that, that we could, could, could measure. It is actually sort of like uh, we, we measure very much on the interactions for our customers. Do they use the... Uh, sort of like extractions, annotations, and all of the things that we have made, or do they switch to their own ways of working? Because we provide a SaaS solution directly to their course, uh, core areas of working, and we can can then directly measure, uh, did they complete the, the things within uh, our software where we have the AI enabled, or did they switch back to, to the old way? So, so, so that is uh, that is our main uh, sort of like measurement. It's like, how well does it work? Then, of course, before we go there, we, of course, have all the F1 scores and so on and so forth, uh, doing testing and training and all of these things. But uh, the thing that we measure on in, internally is this: uh, how well do our customers actually perceive our product? Great. Okay, so next up is Nikolai. And you want to talk about the toolbox of a data scientist in 2022. So what do you expect to have in there? So I really wanted to talk about the toolbox because, as we already established, there's a lot of tools out there. and with the rise of the open source, it really is crazy how much work is put into these models. It's not like some guy just built it in a basement and put it online. This is actually some of the biggest companies in the world creating open source models. How can we best use these models? That's one of the parts of this question, right? In my toolbox, I, of course, have some of the things we've been mentioning here today. I have Hawking Face, which is an excellent pipeline build builder for Transformers. And again, the Transformers models right now are the, the hot thing and booming thing with the attention. Um, then I, of course, have all the usual suspects like Pandas and NumPy. I use specifically uh, PyTorch as my preferred library because it enables me to do a more Pythonic thing when I work with data, um, which is, like in my opinion, more easy than some of the other libraries. And then I've really gotten into deep graph libraries because we've been working with the financial sector at capacity. And for that reason, there's a lot of relationships, uh, relational databases that we have to look through, right? And right now we could build models regarding that with attention, for example, let's say you have some pipeline set up, but deep graph uh, library is, is very good at quickly understanding the relation between data. So again, 
for the rest of you, my question is, what is in your toolbox and, and how do you use it to go from a development or ideation phase into production? Okay, Rasmus, what's in your toolbox then? Oh yeah. Uh, well, I mean, for me, I uh, I've been following. Can you say the open source communities uh, since since I started in 2021 AI, and I, you know, I, th I think it's extremely. Uh, it's been it's been crazy development, right? It's been uh, and, and as you say, right, some of the biggest companies are are, are sort of releasing this also. So I think it, in that sense, I think some of the biggest problems that I've seen is not maybe the tools that you use but more that these tools can be used over time because what happens is that uh you know a new tool pops up a new version of something pops up and suddenly your whole pipeline has to be replaced uh and that's maybe some of the biggest challenges which is actually fairly common in the software development world but it's, it's just, I, I think it's just like uh, in the data science world it seems like you know you want to have the newest of the newest of the newest rather than take it the most stable version of something right and i think that's a trend that uh, at least when we hire for data scientists we actually look at you know obviously their data science skills but we also look at what are their software development skills mm -hmm. uh, you know because that that has something to do with the kinds of libraries and the stability which are all things that you need when it comes to production and operational uh, elements of the models and i think that's a, a, a an element that we need to take more into account when we build these models and the same goes for things like technical depth in the in the data science community i think it's something that needs to be addressed uh, earlier in the stages uh, uh, yeah so i don't know if somebody else has something no i mean uh, i have the same thinking as you when it comes to um, data scientists so all my data scientists are also coders and uh, can put their machine learning algorithms in production and we are still quite young in this field in IKEA to be honest so I was learning but we are using a lot of Google Cloud as our base and the cloud providers to store our data and also use Google tools such as Vertex AI and to, uh, to handle more the machine learning pipeline back to production and then when it comes to other tools uh, everything's out there uh, that is coming uh, hugging face use it a lot uh, whisper or speed to text is uh, beating everything else uh, <laughs> at the moment uh, i see it hard for companies to make money on speech to text board but uh, yeah it's all about how you use it uh, yeah. so those are things in my two books currently <laughs> uh, but it's important to look at this you have to look at all the way to production version control of the models everything to have yeah really working solution uh, I agree to that point, Stefan. That's exactly what we are looking at when when we we hire people. So so we we want to we have both a software uh, sort of like part of our product and we have an AI part of our, our product. But when we are hiring uh, ML engineers, as, as we call it internally, we look very much that they can go end to end, sort of like entirely from the way where we conceptualize a product that we want to to develop, to sort of like what is our annotation strategy for this. How how should we do it to the sort of like how do we collect the data how do we pre-process the data 
uh, creating the, the the machine learning models uh, or deep learning models that lies behind this. And that can then be based on either sort of like some fine tuning of BERT or whatever we, we would, would use. And then all the way to creating the API in, in fast API or whatever it will be to actually also creating the Kubernetes manifest or whatever that would need to, to, to be used for, for, for deploying it monitoring it through Grafana, uh, deploying it to, to production, creating the, the GitHub run, uh, GitHub actions, uh, all of these things. And it's very much about being end-to-end -end today, I think. If you want to really succeed as a, a success, have success as an ML engineer, I think you need to be as much as you can end-to-end. Uh, then there are people who find interest within uh, DevOps or MLOps, uh, going into version control, uh, using MLflow or TVC or whatever it would be, uh, who get specialized in that, but they still need to know exactly how do we set up an annotation strategy, uh, what kind of open source uh, solutions are there for annotating data from via Label Studio or whatever it would be, to then going all the way to, to putting it in production, monitoring it and so on. Because if you don't have that end-to-end -end responsibility, then you are about to take shortcuts uh, in some areas where you say like, ah, I can just do this a little bit easier. Then it'd be much more difficult for the guy who's going to do the monitoring. Uh, but uh, that never mind because that's not my responsibility. But if you have the end-to-end -end responsibility, I think you just get much more value out of your, uh, your, your work. Yeah, I would say, I mean, what we've done because uh, in our in our software and our platform, we also have pipelines and work workspaces and uh, deployment of production models and so on. And what we've done is sort of said, well, let's take the best of breed of the software libraries like uh, Pandas, Python 3.8, whatever, create some packages around that and then uh, uh, expose these packages of libraries towards uh, like a, a stream, like, uh, so So for example, well, if you run a pipeline, you run it with these libraries. If you run a, uh, a deploy a production model, you run it with these in the same libraries so that uh, you, you, have, you don't have these problems when you're going from tier to tier with the same code, right? Because that's a very common that if you download something from GitHub and try to run it, you'll you'll end up in a lot of problems with versioning. Mm -hmm. uh, so 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 avoiding that by sort of pre-packaging these in in a, in a good way, and then then you can add you know new stuff, uh, new libraries on top of that. And I think another point that I, I feel is also important is uh, is this uh, I wouldn't say cloud agnostic, but but the ability to move this code across different infrastructures. Uh, we, we see it a lot, uh, maybe so not in so much in the financial sector, but when it comes to IoT uh, areas, for example, there's a lot of need to uh, have some parts of a model running in a cloud environment somewhere, somewhere and then maybe have something run in a, uh, in a manufacturing facility on an on-prem environment, for example. And in order to achieve these things, you need to really be firm around what are the kind of libraries that you're using, and and the and the the, the upgrading and versioning of that? Because you want to make sure that this, the code you wrote will also work in the next and the next and the next images of libraries. And the only way to do that is by testing, right? <laughs> uh, and 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 that if you don't have that automated, it's going to take a lot of time. Mm -hmm. And I I, I want also say that I mean, there's one thing with these tools that you use, but when it comes to uh, if you want to choose a SAS provider, how do you really evaluate and compare different AI ML SAS providers? Mm. Uh, it's really hard 
uh, to see, okay, what can they offer now? What can they offer in the future? How well is this actually working? How do I actually evaluate this? And you need quite big skills to evaluate that in a good way. It's not something that any person can do and understand. So, and I would really would like to hear also from like you guys and Jacob are working as a SAS provider <laughs> <laughs> uh, on, on how you think around this. Yes, uh, I think it's a really good question because uh, that that's uh, all the thing, time that what we, we talk with our, our customers about, of course, is that yes, a SAS, a AI-powered SaaS product is not like going out and installing Outlook on your computer and then you have some features then those features are updated once a year or something like that. You, it's a constant uh, sort of like journey that you are on uh, because it, it changes all the time. Uh, and and that, is, that is definitely really, really hard when you have to compare two uh, providers against each other uh, because, uh, of course, you can give them a, a test data set. Uh, but uh, everyone knows that works within this field that if you give a give a test data set, uh, then they can can make that uh, sort of like shine. Uh, no doubts about that. That that's that that's easy, uh, because you also don't want to assess uh, two thousand uh, sort of like uh, samples uh, because you need to have the right answer for them uh, when when you do it, and 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 then it's uh, that's not what you you would like to to do. Uh, and even though uh, that you you give them two thousand, then they can also make that shine. So 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 that is really really hard, and I, I completely agree. I think the best testimony that I think uh, we are also working with some some SaaS providers, uh, also AI powered and so on, on on our own sort of like how do we work with them, and and we we really just sort of like talk with with the with some of their customers. I think that's the best thing you can do in that case is to get reference calls. And then it's it's down to also what are they sort of like providing in terms of assistance when when they it is actually running interruption. How much time do you get to to uh, how is your possibilities to get in touch with with developers and and so on and so forth? Is it a, just a chatbot that you would meet that will sort of like reply to you with the standard documentation? Or are you actually able to to talk? with the teams uh, about, okay, we have some issues here with concept drift, model drift, data drift, whatever we would call it, uh, that seems to be screwing the model right now. And then here are some examples and what is then the response? Because I think you're you're completely right. It is really, really difficult. And just to, to follow up on that, I, I completely agree with you, Jakob. Uh, I think, I think from, from, our, from our perspective, what we've done is that we sort of uh, you know, it's an it's typically uh, enterprises that are that are that are using our platform, and uh, it's not just a blank page. Right, we provide training for the data science teams yeah. that wants to be onboarded, uh, so that we give them all the right tools. And actually, when we start these training sessions, then we typically uh, uh, agree on the scope of the goal of the models that the data science teams want to build. Right, so that. Once the training is over, they typically have a running production model that can be accessed either using an API or there's a full user interface that they can interact with. Uh, so that's one thing. The other part that we did was that we said, well, 
is it possible for us to provide some sort of pre-built material, right? So we built like a whole library of different pre-built applications and models that you can sort of use out of the box. And it's not like um, a hogging face model instance. It's more like the, all the code that goes behind, uh, you know, loading the data, training the data and so on for some specific purpose, right? And then we try to, you know, put that into libraries and present that in nice ways to uh, to the teams, right? And, mm. and, and that provides some traction in that sense that, <clears throat> and some, some sort of insights into, well, how does this actually work when you're doing a chatbot or when you're doing a, a churn model or whatever it is, right? Um, uh, yeah. Okay, so we'll move on to our next topic then, which is with Stefan. Uh, so you want to talk about the usability of AI, as well as how to decide to make or buy AI solutions. So do you want to delve into this a little more then? Yeah, we already started touching on it. Uh, yeah. In, uh, it was leading uh, straight into that, uh, right? And I also, um, so we have covered that a bit already. Uh, okay. But um, I was also thinking about actually usability of AI from an end user perspective, where we have talked about chatbot here a bit, and we, of course, have, are introducing chatbot as part of the work we do in the IKEA. But how are we actually making people enjoy and appreciate and you know, getting used to working and communicating with, with their chatbot? I mean, we have given it a name, it's called Billy. Um, so they're talking to Billy. Hi, I'm Billy. But, <laughs> but still, the most common phrase we get from customers is, I want to speak with a human. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? uh, it's most clearly the most common topic that, that we find. So I think there's still a long way to go to really getting people to be used to using AI. Mm. Yeah. Okay, Jacob, do you, wanna, do you have a, an opinion on this? Uh, I of course have an opinion on on the the mega buy uh, part of it, but but uh, but but going towards the the end use because that I actually think is, is super important. That's also something we we look very much uh, at stuff like how do you actually make the user adoption because uh, that that that's super critical, especially with with our service. We we work very much into the core of the business, uh, sort of like very much into sales and 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 so on. And uh, how do you make people trust? In yep. the AI. I think that that that's the most important thing because it, it's very easy when we are out and, and speaking with people. We we have them some they have measures on how much do people actually do of mistakes when you are entering in an order when you are copy pasting uh, things from document yep. to a system and so on and so forth. You make mistakes, uh, and the human error rates last between five and eight per percent. If we can show sort of like with very high statistical accuracy that our error rate is, is is two percent. Then you will still see people like say, okay, two percent. Then which means like two out of hundred actually will be wrong, uh, and you have just been sitting and discussing like that the human error rate is five to eight percent. That is just a disconnect in terms of machines cannot make mistakes. Uh, so 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 you need to really make them trust in the solution. And and our sort of like. Uh, reflection on that has just been that you need to to make them you and not make them but have the the capability for them to to actually use it because that's where you gain the trust and uh, regarding chatbots uh, when we have uh, looked into that it's very simple that the, the chatbots that just give you generic answers with links to places like go here and read that are the chatbots that we have seen fail the most 
uh, you need to have a good QA uh, sort of like algorithm that can go in and extract exactly that the information that they're talking about. If they're asking like, what is the uh, sort of like uh, material for this chat? Then it's not sending like, here's the link to to that um, sort of like product you can go and check. It's more like, oh, the material is uh, is wood or, or whatever. Okay, then then you will be a, a sort of like willing to engage more. And uh, the way that we have tried to force this for also our developers is that they need to use it. So so whenever they have a question regarding something, then you need to use it uh, because that is how you can actually see the the flaws that you have. Okay, if you you would rather not use it, then it's it might not be the right one. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe I mean. Uh, what I experience more and more is that the fact that these kinds of projects, they become not just a, a machine learning exercise, not just a project management exercise, not just a legal exercise, but in fact, there's a UX design team on top of this, right? Mm. And that user experience is extremely critical for success. And I think uh, an area uh, that is probably needs some more attention in, in the industry as a whole. I know Google has, has done quite a bit of work on this, but is around the ethical implications of the user experience as well, mm -hmm. which is, I, I find very, and an example of that is a, a project we did a, a customer that that have, uh, you know, you have some managers that have employees and then uh, you can capture certain events so then you can you can actually detect whether the employee is about to leave the company, right? Uh, and then obviously it becomes a question, well, should you should you present this uh, information to the manager, right? Uh, that this employee is probably leaving your company uh because and and in those kind of situations you you it's very important i think to serve this information in the right way right to put the right words around it to have the right graphics around it so that it 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 it's it it's not a it's not a it's not a a de definitive thing, right? It's just an indication that something is happening and you might want to look into this. And I think that whole experience, uh, I think needs to be uh, something that we that we talk a lot more about in the AI community because it's it's not really something that we that we talk a lot about. And I think it's extremely important. Um, yeah. Nikolai? I definitely agree <clears throat> that it's extremely important to to, again, as Jacob said, basically understand that if your model is 100% correct, you've actually done something wrong, right? <laughs> there, needs to be, there needs to be a margin for error. Um, so normally when you present, so I guess a manager would say that looks terrific if it's 100%, but but actually you, again, this is not uh, 100%. So, so basically you have to convince with all of these good arguments regarding so what is the error rate before how how do you actually optimize the error rate let's say you have a threshold something like that and you do an analysis of that and show that okay so how much are we letting through and how much are we not letting through another th interesting thing i was uh, thinking about stefan in regards mm -hmm. to if you want to build it yourself or mm -hmm. if you want to if you want to buy it it's also that this space the deep learning space is moving so fast so sometimes when you are a company that provides a SaaS solution you really if you're not good at having like an agile development flow or pipelines that we talked about before you really get stuck in the dark ages with these models and then somebody from facebook or now meta will release whisper for example and you're stuck 
in this uh, this this paradigm. So I, I really think it's interesting to kind of have a hire that that looks at the news research, basically just goes through what are the news thing, how are the accuracies of these things, and are we able to fastly take these normally not that pretty GitHub repos that researchers put out and turn them into good use. That's another thing that Jacob talked about. This with, you know, you, you give them a test set and they just make this, this test, test, uh, test set very, very pretty. And researchers also do this a lot. So it's a very defined space. Um, and you have to be very critical when you when you also study the news research to find a solution to your problem. But it's just in general a good rule to to keep up with with what's being developed and how can we how can we think about what's going to happen next month? Can we quickly turn to this new model, for example? Okay. Very important thing. Yes, thanks. All right, so we will move on to our final question then, um, or section. And Rasmus, you have asked to discuss responsible AI, uh, so regarding large language models. Do you want to elaborate a little bit? Yeah, so uh, I, I, I've been using stable diffusion for, for uh, some, some hobby projects, right? And one thing that I noticed, and it, the same happens with GPT-3 and some of the other big uh, models out there, but I, I found it really interesting the fact that the way that they sort of uh, uh, prevent uh, generated data or abusive, for example, generated data to be displayed to the user is basically that after the output, uh, after the output of the diffusion model has been generated, then it wants to, for example, a porn filter, right? Uh, that they that they that they just couldn't figure out how to not have the model generate the content, right? So the model still generates the content, but then they apply a filter on it afterwards. And I kind of find that extremely interesting. That this is the approach that they're taking to the to to these kind of issues, right? Um, so I, I wanted to hear your opinion on how how you think that will be solved in the future. Do you okay. think the models themselves will be sort of rebalanced to 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 not uh, you know, or to 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 output the the things that that we as a society find acceptable, or will it be something else? I I definitely think that you can look to towards something like conditional uh, transformers, for example. So how do we actually let's say that right now our pipelines it's really much about building tokens, tokenizing stuff, tokenizing images, putting it in there. But how do we create tokens which are actually constraints? So I think that. Right now, at least, a thing that could be thought about in this uh, this this sector of, of kind of preventing things that we are not that into as humans is kind of how do you make conditions for your neural networks? How do you pass in something that can be conditional? Um, and we've been showing showed with this with, uh, for example, these last uh, you know gain generative generative uh, adversarial neural networks, basically, where you pass in a token. And if it's the right token, then you'll get a, let's say it's the MNIST data set, which is just a set of numbers. If you pass this token in, you will get a seven, you'll get a five, but you can take that and explore it some more and think about how can you actually make these tokens affect the weight in a way that is more uh, humane, if you want to say. Yeah, I think also the, the data responsibility, you know, the AI, responsible AI areas is very interesting because the reason why we're talking about this is, of course, because we see like the huge power uh, that some of these things will, will have. And uh, 
I think it, it is like you, you have it in the media if you have some like ethical uh, councils and, and so on that actually sits and review this. And it's much more difficult in the AI perspective because it's not because someone put up an article, someone then read it and then think that here's something wrong. This is sort of like fake news or whatever. And they can report it and, and so on. Because here you might not know what model actually lies behind the picture that you're seeing on the internet or the advice that you are getting as a manager that hope this person might be be prone to to leave your company and you might be sitting there and saying like okay then i don't want to invest time in him or you might be sitting there and saying like okay that's actually fine because i don't uh, don't need him or you might be sitting there and saying like oh that i need not to happen so then i give him a raise but not his co-worker who's working just as hard and who i cannot uh, sort of like miss out on, but but because I don't get that signal f- from him, and then it, it is it is really much sort of like okay, what what is what is actually responsible exactly as as, as you say, and how should we be control it? Because it is not possible uh, to set up a potentially an, an ethical council that can review this, but potentially some standard needs to be set. Because right now, for example, if you go to the the medias, uh, we have some uh, rules about advertising that you what. What you can and cannot advertise for, but as we know, just before the election, there was a huge debate around uh, the entire uh, sort of like gambling, uh, sort of like advertisement, and all research show that the people who are prone to these advertisements are also the people who are prone to become addictive to gambling, uh, and but still they are running right. Uh, so I think that that AI here yeah, and uh, the entire area of machine learning, deep learning needs to be a step ahead of that to make sure that such thing doesn't happen, that we don't start targeting people for advertisement that are sort of like hurting them uh, in the in the long run. I think it's it's a very interesting topic. I have no answers to it, but I think it's it's <laughs> very interesting and it's it's a really sort of like uh, important area to to discuss and and very much more research needs to go into that. It's definitely mm-hmm. yeah, but I, and I do think that that uh, AI will I mean there will be requirements on AI to follow what's acceptable in society and what is acceptable in society might change in things that are acceptable like now is not at all the same as what they accepted 10 or 20 or 30 years ago and it's not even acceptable across the world what things you are allowed to say and what kind of things are acceptable to 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 be to be put in a in a language model or something like that. and it can easily go wrong if we do uh, if you don't if you let it learn by itself. Mm. I was working in a large company when they, six years ago, uh, released like a self-learning bot that like had to be shut down within 24 hours because it just learned so many profanities that it's just <laughs> not acceptable anymore. I'm not mentioning company here, um, but it's definitely a problem that uh, needs to be treated with care. Yeah. Another topic, if I can add something there that I find quite interesting, um, I've spoken to someone before about this, that there's a lot of sexism in AI um, because of the data being from years and years ago um, it kind of things that then happen now is still from that old data and a lot of it's quite sexist and things like that and it's crazy to me to think that because times have changed and maybe just the data that hasn't um so yeah it is really interesting that side of things as well yeah is there anything anyone else would like to add yeah i think i just following up that uh i think it's also that's actually some some one of the the more challenging areas right and i think the right solution is the same 
as the stable diffusion model and the pawn filter is that you simply have a, a gender model kind of thing that you run on the generated images or generated text or generated uh, 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 you know spoken word after the model has generated it and then hopefully over time you know society as a whole will sort of adapt to that right but it's just it's not being done now so I'm really hoping that there are some companies out there that will sort of uh, you know do that to the especially in the large uh, for the, for the larger models because for the larger models we it's simply just too I, I don't think that we will rebalance the models themselves I think the models need to affect the overarching society in such a way so that it won't happen again uh, but yeah I don't know. Uh, it's a difficult task and it would take a lot of time, I suppose. Uh, but, uh, yeah, we need someone to take yeah. it on. Yes, I definitely yeah. agree. Uh, I think also if you, there is, uh, now I'm not uh, getting royalties in it, but there's this book, Invisible Woman, uh, sort of like going back to, to the past about how you, you did doc, drug discovery, discovery uh, on mice, but only male mice because the female mice and their period uh, sort of like would mess up your, your drug study. So you only did it on, on male mice and, and, and therefore you just, of course, also get sort of like bias towards male uh, sort of like genes and, and so on and also with test dummies for car crashes and, and so on and so forth. So I think you're completely right there, Rasmus. We need to, to to develop something that can be put on top until society has adapted uh, to this and is, is being more equalized. Uh, because otherwise, if you go in today uh, based on sort of like historical data and you take a test on, okay, what uh, job should I as a person sort of like would I be most fitted for and you fill in all of your information and all of that stuff there will just be a bias right uh, so so therefore there needs to be, be put on something that I can help correcting for that so that there will not be a, a bias towards women getting specific job and with uh, sort of like job uh, sort of like suggestions if they there was such a, an, an algorithm. This is uh, also what I reflect on is this because things so this and previous topic shows that that we, we have much higher requirements on AI than we have on people. Yes. <laughs> so we can we can be quite accepting if, if we talk to someone and they are saying something is stupid, maybe sexist, like oh it's, it's having a bad day. But on AI we have much higher requirements. Uh, so on on take up on the error rate that we talked about before, right? It actually makes sense to have higher requirements on an error rate on AI because a, a customer using it will often be okay if, 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 if a human is, is doing some mistakes because uh, they're only human. <laughs> but the machine doing a mistake much more severe. Yes. So yeah. if you measure like happy customer score, then as long as human is friendly, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's also on a massive scale, right? And I think one thing is to be a commercial company, but we also have a lot of experience working with the public sector. And I think in the public sector, you need to set the bar even higher there, right? You need to yeah. be even more aware of these things because the, the citizens don't have a choice, right? Yeah. It, so I think, and that's a, that's an important message, I think, especially to the public sector and to uh, to the commercial sectors that are, uh, you know, under some form of monopoly kind of situations where where we really need to be aware of that, right? I think we need to set the bar high as 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 uh, as enterprises as and, and as organizations yep okay 
Okay, so on that note, we're going to leave it there. Um, I think we could talk for hours and hours on this topic. Um, but I just want to take this opportunity just to thank you all, Nikolai, Rasmus, Jacob and Stefan for providing some great insights into today's topic. Hopefully you and our listeners are able to take something away from this episode. And if you would like to get involved in one of our future upcoming podcasts, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. I hope you've enjoyed listening. This has been the Evolution Exchange podcast. See you next time.